Hello, and welcome once again to the TIFF podcast. I'm Shamil Haroon. Armed conflict is a major source of preventable death and disability worldwide, and has both direct and indirect consequences for health. There has been a growing interest in the role health professionals can play in both helping people affected by conflict, but also in using health as a lens through which to view global violence and to advocate for its prevention. I spoke to Daniel Fleckno to discuss this further. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much for joining the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Daniel Flecknow. I'm a public health registrar in the East Midlands. Um, I'm currently based at Public Health England in Nottingham, and uh, that's been my training location since I started. So I'm nearly halfway. I'm two years into uh, four and a bit year training program because I'd, I'd done my master's prior to joining the training program. And could you say a bit about your background in public health? Sure. So I um, I did a philosophy degree straight from school uh, and, and in a vague kind of not sure what I want to do with myself way afterwards, I, uh, I enrolled on nurse training because it had a bursary at that stage and uh, it was a way of staying a student. I'm not going to pretend there was any deeper plan than that. Uh, but I got to like uh, particularly A&E nursing for the, the, the drama and the unpredictability and, and whatnot. So I did about 10 years A&E nursing and um, developed an interest in trauma and uh, <clears throat> in, I suppose, in, in what I would now call but wouldn't at the time have recognized as, as wider determinants. Um, I also took the opportunity of, of my training to uh, work overseas a bit. I did some shipboard medicine, I did some expedition medicine, and I did some humanitarian aid work, which was really what got me interested in public health. So uh, I came back from working with Medicine Sans Frontiere in Darfur in 2009 and immediately enrolled on the Masters in Public Health in London, which was how I even found out about the possibility of becoming a registrar. Great. And you founded the Special Interest Group in um, Global Violence Prevention. Could you say a bit more about that? Yes, uh, I founded I founded this group along with my colleague, Bayad Abdelrahman. Uh, we'd been talking extensively about about our interests and about our experience of working in uh, in conflict zones. Uh, Bayad has has uh, quite a bit of experience in in uh, Iraq in a humanitarian capacity. So we we both uh, we both had this interest in common, and I think that's that's the purpose of special interest groups really is to allow faculty members and other public health professionals to uh, to have a sort of forum for, for discussing interests which are they're part of public health but perhaps not not mainstream. Um, I suppose the genesis, if you don't mind me uh, telling a quick story, no, the genesis of my, of my thinking on this 
topic was was when I was in Darfur, and uh, I met a little girl. Now, Darfur, uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's it's the western region of Sudan. It's about the size of Spain. It's a very underdeveloped area, and there's been some low-level conflict going on for decades, which flared up in about 2003 um, in an independent struggle and a government crackdown. Lots of different militia and rebel groups involved. I think about 500,000 people killed and uh, millions displaced from their homes, but mainly displaced within the country. You have to cross a border fleeing violence or persecution in order to be classified as refugee under international law. So we were um, we were working largely with internally displaced persons who might be thousands of miles from their home, uh, where they've they've had to leave because of the fighting. But uh, yeah, they're not classed as refugees. So I was working for MSF at a medical facility that was located in the middle of two very large internally displaced persons camps. We we covered about. 40 or 50,000 people. And uh, health in the camps was generally pretty good because MSF had been there for some years, as had Oxfam doing water and sanitation and the World Food Programme doing food distribution. But occasionally we did see people who were very ill or very poorly nourished or who had uh, deficiency diseases of one kind or another. If they came from outside of the, the sort of zone that we were providing services to because you know if if the nearest medical facility is four days walk away and and you really need medical care then then you'll find a way to to get there or, or die trying which actually makes quite an interesting counterpoint when you come back from that sort of experience to a, a london a and e department and and uh have to deal with the complaints that you know we've been waiting to see a doctor for nearly an hour and a half anyway this was uh, this was one one particular day. I, I was uh, I was writing some notes to myself, sitting outside our inpatient facility, and this little girl came and, and sat down next to me, which doesn't sound very exciting, but it was quite exciting to me because I was used to children treating me as if I was a creature from outer space. <laughs> We're going to run up against some of the limitations of the format here, but uh, I'll, I'll just ask listeners to assume that they're looking at, at, at someone uh, reasonably pasty pale and, and white. And that is not a look that, that blends into a crowd well in Darfur, where, um, yeah, well, I, was, I was definitely a rarity. And children are very open and honest about expressing their, their feelings and their, and their interests, so... Yeah, running away screaming was was more the reaction that I was used to from kids. Therefore, and we could we could have some fun with that. It was uh, once once they got used to me, but they still considered me very alien. So the fact that she didn't seem freaked out by me at all was was great. I thought, wow, this is I'm I'm really settling in. Anyway, we we engaged in a bit of uh, a bit of dialogue within the limitations of of my Arabic, which is terrible now it was it was i suspect you know manuel from faulty towers uh <laughs> of, of functionality back then so you know i i we exchanged a traditional greeting and i asked after the health of her parents 
Um, I didn't know her parents, just something you say. I asked where she was from and she said somewhere that I'd never heard of. I think I might have said something about the weather, which is very British. Anyway, that was about the extent of my my plausible conversation on the subject, and uh, and and perhaps she could tell that that I was that I was done because she stood up <clears throat> and and turned around to go back into the uh, the inpatient department, and she'd been looking away from me the whole time, so I hadn't actually seen her eyes until she turned round, and they were kind of milky, cloudy cataracts. Um, which uh, which which made made her entirely blind, um, so that was the explanation for that. Also, the fact that I hadn't heard of the place that she was from meant that she was one of those people who was from outside of of the area uh, that we were providing services to. I found out afterwards that, that her family had had walked for several days because her little brother was very sick. He had meningitis. Um, he actually recovered okay. She was now past the point where we had anything that we could do about about her issue, which was probably a micronutrient deficiency and something so preventable, you know, but because she lived in a very resource poor area, which, you know, further to being resource poor was devoting all of its available resources to having this fight over, you know, land and territory and, and which group of powerful people, uh, claimed control of of the land and uh it was a very it was a very sobering moment for me because i i felt like i had a handle on the uh the health impacts of of conflict because we would you know we would we would treat people who'd been injured however it was it was the first time that i i really started thinking about the indirect effects and in this case, you know, just just a very basic lack of of, uh, of supplements and, and good nutrition, which which meant this this little girl was going to be blind for the rest of her life. And um, you know, having looked at some statistics since, there's about WHO estimates there's about two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand children in resource poor countries go blind every year because of micronutrient deficiencies. And about half of those will die within 12 months of going blind because, by definition, they're not living in places where reasonable adjustments for that kind of disability can be made. So it's something that stayed with me. It still um, angers and energizes me to some extent. Uh, but it's it was, a, it was an introduction to some of the indirect effects of, of conflict and... Um, and then more recently uh talking to Bayad about about this and you know why don't we ever talk about this as as public health professionals you know we yeah okay armed conflict is not is not necessarily within uh within the traditional remit of medicine but we talk about poverty we we are quite happy as a profession and our professional organizations do the same we talk about poverty, we'll advocate for policies to ameliorate the effects of poverty because we recognize it as a preventable cause of a huge amount of, of uh, morbidity and, um, and early mortality. Well, armed conflict, I mean, the, the toll is, is huge. And, um, and I guess what we realized that what we were both 
what we had both been doing in our humanitarian efforts was a bit like tertiary prevention. You know, it's it's re- trying to reduce the harm of uh, of conflicts which are already existing, which is necessary work. It needs it needs to be doing needs to be done. It's getting harder to do <clears throat> because of the you know increasing lack of respect for for the rules of of war by all parties really um but it it needs to be doing there's there's places where there's a lot of places where where that work needs to be done however if if there's something that i've learned in the last two and a bit years um you know prevention is better than cure it's it's uh it's basic isn't it so it's something that we need to get upstream on and the Global Violence Prevention SIG was really founded as a way of giving people who have the same interest a forum to uh, to network, to to find areas of shared interest, to form research collaborations, and to try and push this issue up the agenda of the faculty. Great, such a powerful story and experience that led to the formation of this special interest group. Um, could you say a little about what the current work streams are? Sure. So we're still quite early days. We we've um, we we sent in the applications. I think uh, before Christmas. But with any new special interest group, it has to go through a process, and there's you know there's a committee that has to uh, that has to agree and sign off on it. So it took a little while. We, uh, I think, we got we got formally recognised in March, possibly. Which unfortunately was slightly too late to uh, to get our own session at the faculty conference. Um, but uh, we got a poster, and I I waved flies around at people um, to the best of my ability. So we are we're still developing both in terms of membership and and what we're working on. I think at the moment there's there's two approximately separate work streams. There's an academic side of things which is which aims to raise awareness in the form of education and training. Uh and and that's developing from from conflicts and health uh talks and and sessions that that we've run um through to the possibility of developing uh an optional master's module or perhaps uh, an independent cpd module uh and then we have a few people within our group who are academically minded they're academic trainees or uh you know they're professors of public health uh, who are interested in doing research and in some cases already have done research on the direct and indirect health impacts of of conflict, which it's obviously in some ways it's kind of a common sense thing. You know, you can. I don't think anyone would argue that you're not going to be able to attain the highest standard of health if you're living in a war zone, but uh, but quantifying that and uh, and getting good data on it is both important and really difficult because obviously the same conditions which uh, which interfere with with people's ability to secure their own health and, and well-being 
also really frustrate efforts to collect good data because, you know, there's always uh, conflicting reports after, well, not just after, after and during the, any data on how many people have died or, or uh, been injured or, or made ill by a war. It's always very politicized. So it's always going to be in dispute. So, uh, yeah, contributing to good evidence-based uh, data is, is something that we're, that we're very interested in doing. And then the other stream is policy, which is, as I said, we, we're hoping to, uh, to get the faculty to uh, adopt a, a position on this. And we're, <clears throat> I was working this morning on a, a draft policy statement, which we, uh, we will discuss as a group. We may... Uh, engage with some of the other special interest groups uh, on this or uh, possibly the Global Health Committee, uh, which we could then take to the faculty and say, you know, would you consider this at your general policy committee and um, possibly adopt it as a, as a statement for the organisation? And would you say that that's the main role of the special interest group? Um, would be around advocacy to try and encourage uh, our government and other governments to try and um, shift policy more towards preventing violence? Or, or do you think there are other roles that health professionals can play in, in trying to um, prevent um, global violence? I think it's very important for uh, for health professionals to, to have a voice in this and, and traditionally as I said, traditionally, I think people have just thought, well, that's not in our remit. Um, one of the other, one of the other genesises, geneses, one of the other factors in, uh, in, uh, Bayard and I thinking about the special interest group was the MedAct health through peace conference, which took place in November. Uh, and that was a, you know, a third sector organization who's, whose goal is to get medical professionals um, more engaged politically with issues of social justice and human rights. And in this case, a whole, a whole conference based around issues relating to conflict and health and the whole spectrum from, you know, looking at, at veterans health um, to humanitarian issues to peace building in general. Uh, and that's, you know, I, I think I think that you could take as a as a practical starting point to to what we're trying to do. But in general, SIGs um, are intended by the terms of reference that we're working from to uh, to engage with issues that the faculty may not have the uh, the manpower to engage with. Um, obviously, they're a relatively small workforce and and they're a member driven organization as well so if uh, if there's enough people within the organization who who are passionate about a particular um a particular issue then then we provide the the ammunition and and they represent us hopefully great now at the moment the membership is is it largely consisting of academics or is it um, a diverse more diverse than that Oh, we're quite a nice mix, really. I think we we're only sort of twelve people at the moment. We haven't been advertising proactively, and I think it's been it's been helpful for us to to say to stay relatively 
small in the initial stages while we're finding our feet and defining our our terms and our uh, our goals and ambitions. Um, but we're about even mix, an even mix of uh, probably about a quarter academic trainees or or uh, you know professional academics, uh, regular registrars, consultants, and uh, health protection nurses. So it's been it's a it's a network that's been largely built up either through word of mouth or <clears throat> or through contacts within PHE, which is uh, where Biad works as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, also doing this podcast is another way of of trying to get the word out, and and hopefully some more people who are interested who hear this might uh, might want to be involved. And we can certainly post details of, of the special interest group along with the podcast. Um, where do you see it going and, and what about your own plans for the future on the, on, in relation to, to this topic? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm abandoning my, my child, the special interest group, in uh, having you know, nurtured it up to now. I'm, I'm going on a year out of program from August uh, because I decided that I think partly partly the SIG has, has been uh, generating some stuff in me and, and uh, the Health Through Peace Conference and I thought, you know what, I really I actually want to do this again. So I've, uh, I've got approval to take a year out of program and I'm in discussion with Medicines on Frontier again to go and work for them overseas as a public health officer. Which I think will be great experience. It working in in very resource poor settings really gets you back to the nuts and bolts public health stuff. Uh, you know those those fights which we've generally speaking won in in this country of you know good water and sanitation and widespread vaccine coverage and elimination of vectors and and all this sort of thing <clears throat> where where those battles still need to be won in in a lot of areas particularly where where conflict has has just wiped out the medical infrastructure and it's it's interesting that you know if to take arbitrary numbers here but if we say in the UK you know we've we've 90 98% won the battle on uh you know measles vaccination or uh clean water availability the effort that it takes to get it from 97% to 98%. I would not be surprised if the same effort applied in a low-income uh, context would get you from the battle being 30% won to the battle being 60% won. And you make, so you make such a huge comparative difference with, uh, with your time and energy. So it's appealing from that perspective. And do you think um, actually being there on the front line helps in terms of being able to contextualize the work that you'll be doing at a policy level as well and, and also in relation to researching um, you know, global violence prevention? Yes. I'm, I mean, I hope to, uh, wherever, I, wherever I end up, I hope to be able to collect some data and uh, contribute to the literature on the health impacts of, of conflict. And I guess it also gives me 
it, it hopefully adds to my credibility as an advocate on this issue uh, when I come back, if I've uh, if I've recently worked with with MSF in that kind of setting. So, yeah, it's uh, those are secondary considerations really. Um, my old my old boss from MSF Spain spoke at the uh, at the conference in November, and I hadn't seen him for for years. And he gave a really good talk. One of the things that he said that stuck in my head was humanitarian work is motivated by outrage and empathy and uh and i do i feel that very strongly uh that it, it's something that you can be you you definitely get the bug and uh and it you, you get itchy after a while of of not having done it so it's not a very it's not a very rational thing necessarily and and i'm i guess i'm trying to be rational with the special interest group and saying, look, this is a huge problem, and this suffering is preventable, and we need to do something about it. So let's try and get upstream of it and and, and engage with some some primary prevention. Which uh, I, I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what sort of thing that might entail. But you know, at the same time, you also have the urge to to get back in there and, and try and put out some of the fire. Mm. And. W- could you say more about primary prevention? I'm really intrigued to know, you know, what can be done uh, and what health professionals can do in, in, and almost treating um, conflict and violence as, as a risk factor for, for poor health. How can we apply that the same paradigm that we do for, for other health issues um, to this incredibly important area? Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because as I mean, as healthcare professionals, there are some things that we can only advocate for, and I'd, I'd, I'd say that's true of of poverty to some extent, um, because you know we're not working in the financial sector. We're um, we can only partner with organisations that aim to uh, that aim to reduce the impacts of poverty. It's not something that we, as medics or nurses or whatever background we come from can directly affect and that's that's to some extent true with uh with violence prevention as well but there's a lot of community level um conflict resolution and you know diplomatic engagement kind of interventions which although we may not be the right people to do them we can certainly contribute to identifying the need uh which I think fits very well with, with public health in general. You know, we, we may not be the people giving the vaccinations either, but we, uh, you know, we, we identify when there's, uh, when there's a risk and what the steps are to, uh, to, to reduce that risk. There's been some good work done looking at the, uh, the risk factors for, for armed conflict. I mean, we're mainly talking about civil wars now, I suppose, within within a country um, it would be slightly different if you're talking about between countries but <clears throat> the, the risk factors for a country you know tearing itself apart as Syria is at the moment or uh, as the Democratic Republic of Congo has done in recent years or Afghanistan or I mean <clears throat> the list could go on for, for longer than the podcast um, and this is all you know this is historically based and it's a relatively small 
sample size by the standards of of public health epidemiology because we're talking about uh, we're talking about ecological data on a on a nationwide level but there are some things which very strongly predict this kind of thing happening and we're talking about you know autocratic government uh, the rule of um, ethnic minorities over a, a multi-ethnic society recent political crises or upheavals a history of, of civil war or genocide in the country certain economic factors certain ideological factors um, and then there's external factors like you know the relative ambivalence of of uh, trade partners I mean trade is a huge a huge impact um, on whether a country I, I think this could and should have been part of the a bigger part of the EU debate really that you know we don't tend to go to war with countries that we have trade partnerships with and we tend to try and avoid annoying countries that we have trade partnerships with so one of the things that's really enabled Bashar al-Assad in Syria to uh, to undertake uh, some of the the horrific things he's he's done to sections of his own population is the fact that uh, his major trade partner in in Russia isn't all that bothered about it if if they if they would apply sanctions he would probably you know take a different path and uh, one of the other examples that that came to mind uh, some years ago there was a lot of problems with uh, with in Thailand with sort of guerrilla insurgency and um, there'd been some schools taken over I think and Thailand was was considered at the UN to be in breach or in danger of being in breach I think it was of uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child but I, I'm slightly forgetting the details in any in any case Thailand was you know held to be not um, not complying with with international law in significant ways and this was a this is a huge problem for Thailand because so much of their GDP is driven by tourism which could potentially be severely affected uh, by you know being criticized at a UN level or being found in in violation of treaties that it's it's part of and so uh, they they picked up their game they changed what they were doing uh, now obviously not every country has that dependence on on uh, external tourism or trade but in a way it's some of these things are, are things that we can do about something about some of them aren't but if we can identify the risk factors then there are there is some some pretty interesting literature on what sort of strategies can be put into place to uh, to prevent things from spiraling out of control with all of the health consequences that we that we know can can come along with that so that's a really fascinating approach and seeing lots of parallels here with how we, for example, look at um, risk of developing cardiovascular disease in patients in primary care and um, using our understanding of, of the risk factors and, and their impact on prognosis, we apply interventions much earlier on and, and similarly, I guess, with, um, with conflict, um, if we knew what those risk factors were and we were able to to model their likelihood of going on to civil conflicts that could severely impact people's health um, and their safety uh, that perhaps we could uh, intervene much earlier on um, at a at a global level 
Yes, and it, it requires a certain amount of um, proactivity on the part of, of the international community, which which seems to be lacking at the moment. But something that <clears throat> something that, that MedAct, I think, follows as a principle is there's a lot of credibility attached to the medical professions to speak about about health and about uh, you know what we need to do at a population level to improve health and these you know these crises don't stay contained anymore I mean I think there's you know on a on a human level there's no difference between between something happening to me and, and something happening to, to someone in Syria. But but obviously we are also tribal and, and somewhat parochial in our views and it's harder to mobilize uh, public outrage over over things happening more distantly. But these things don't stay put anymore. You know, we've, we've had the refugee crisis over the last couple of years and um, and that is, that is having effects on... It's having effects, obviously, for the people who are um, who are being migrate, who are migrating, but it's having effects, economic, social effects, political effects, on the countries who are hosting these people and through whose countries they're passing. Um, we also now have uh, quite a an interesting and, and complicated problem with radicalization, and there's a you know there's a, there is a spiral effect a, a sort of um self reinforcing effect there that the more that it is perceived uh by minority groups that western governments are either intervening unnecessarily in killing civilians or not intervening you know being callously inactive while members of of what they perceive to be their group are, are being slaughtered people become radicalized and perpetuate the the cycle of conflict and there was i think it was only last week there was a a swedish university who um that have done some analyses on on um direct casualties of of warfare over recent years and have found that it's a, about 50 percent of those casualties now are in conflicts which are uh, associated with jihadism, so we have a you know we have a, a number of cycles that we need to break. Um, we need to find ways to address people's grievances. We need to um, show ourselves as honest and, and transparent actors on the on the global stage. And all of these, although I think I never would have this this would have seemed so wrong to me at one time, but I'm I'm now quite convinced that. It's possible to make an argument for for democracy, for human rights, uh, for diplomatic engagement, all on the basis of the health impacts that not doing those things will have. And uh, you know, that's public health, as was said at the conference last week. Uh, you know, with a political wing of medicine. So I don't see any any case for us not being involved in this kind of thing. And uh, it, it's an area that, that I'm really interested in and, and hope to interest lots of other people in. Great. And could you say a bit about what skills that you, you've developed um, in the course of this work and how they relate to the training curriculum? 
<laughs> well, yeah, uh, start. <laughs> I've been yeah, I've been I've been chairing uh, myself and, and my colleague Bayard are uh, co-chairing uh, the special interest group, and, and obviously uh, I'm going away soon, so uh, there's going to be a, a change of personnel within the executive group. So far, I've generally been chairing our teleconferences. I may not always have been done have done a fantastic job, and some members of the SIG may be listening to this. So I'm going to be slightly careful what I say here. I think I'm improving. <laughs> it's been a learning curve, and uh, you know that kind of the the whole uh, running of meetings is something that I hadn't had a lot of experience with before. There's obviously going to be different uh, different learning outcomes that you could that you could feasibly tick off, depending on what kind of SIG you join and what kind of uh, what kind of role you take in it. I was looking down the the curriculum this morning with reference to this because I'm going to have to write it up as an activity summary at some point. And there's there's sections because I've been involved in. Um, I'm now involved in writing uh, this policy proposal. I've been involved in chairing and leading and setting up the group as as a whole. Um, and there's uh, some involvement in the academic side of things. <clears throat> Obviously, we're treating uh, we're treating armed conflict as a determinant of health and identifying populations who are affected by it. And so, all of this. It, it fits right across the spectrum, really. I mean, you know, key area one, public health intelligence, yes. Key area two, assessing the evidence of effectiveness of interventions. Key area three, policy and strategy. Four, strategic leadership. Five, determinants and communication. Um, probably would find it harder to make much of an argument for health protection or healthcare, public health, six and seven, but academic public health, again, there's, there's things that I'll be able to tick off there. But I think, I think really the thing to say about special interest groups is they are designed to allow people to pursue areas of public health that are somewhat fringe, but which members of the faculty have, uh, have a deep interest in. And, uh, and so in a way, it's just an extension of of what I think is fantastic about this training program, which is <clears throat> that you get to you get to work on things which which are of great interest to you, and you know it, it counts towards your professional development, and, and you get paid for it. What a what an amazing privilege! I do you know I do talks for um, for medical students relatively often about about working overseas and about child health and, and health in conflict zones and things like that. And, and those are things that I would, uh, that I would choose to do with my spare time anyway, because I'm passionate about the subject matter and, uh, because I'm a dreadful attention whore and I like standing up in front of people. but I get to call it work. Amazing. So special interest groups are, uh, uh, a tool, I think, for uh, for public health registrars who have a particular interest. If that interest is not represented by a current special interest group, hey, start one. I mean, the faculty seem very keen for uh, to use this uh, this sort of model of uh, you know member driven policy and uh, 
if and if there is one that that meets your interests, I mean, you know, it might be the global violence prevention one. Don't know if it is. <laughs> then join it and 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 contribute. And you know, you don't have to be an active member, but all all uh, all opinions are uh, are welcome at the table. Sounds like great advice. And what about any reports or research articles you'd recommend reading on this topic? <clears throat> well, uh, again, I have to be I have to be slightly careful not to not to blow my own trumpet here. The um, the article that Bayad and I wrote for um, Public Health Today in November-ish time, which was reprinted in slightly longer form on the faculty blog sort of represents our thinking at the early stages of the process. Um, the article was called A Bold New Frontier for Primary Prevention, and it's on the faculty Better Health for All blog. And it, it starts off by exploring uh, the toll of morbidity and mortality associated with armed conflict globally and how we would approach this issue if armed conflict was an addictive drug, which you sometimes wonder, but you know, assume that it's a that it's an illegal substance. What would we be saying about this as a community? Well, I think we'd be saying that on the basis of the immense harm that it causes to both to users and non-users who just happen to be unlucky enough to be in an area where lots of people are addicted, um, we, we'd say that. You know, it ought to be it ought to be restricted, and you know that that's not necessarily a, a drug legalization um, counter argument. But I, I don't think that any any drug that had the kind of associated death toll that uh, that warfare does globally, uh, I, I don't think there'd be much pushback against against banning it or severely restricting it. Um, so that would be if if people want a, a basic. Um, a basic view on, on the subject. That was the start of our thought process that led to the creation of the special interest group. The um, people might be interested in the uh, the literature that I was talking about on the subject of warning signs, risk factors, and uh, prevention. And uh, one of the best articles I think on that <coughs> is uh, is called "To Prevent, React, and Rebuild." It's uh, 2004 uh, Adler et al. A D L E R et al. 2004 in uh, Health Services Research Journal. That's called "To Prevent, React, and Rebuild." It's a little long, but it's it's uh, it will repay the effort of reading it. Great, and and again, we'll try and put uh, links to that with the podcast. A- any conferences or, or courses you'd recommend? Well, I know that MedAct are uh, are currently starting plans for a repeat Health Through Peace conference, which I believe is going to be next July. Um, I'm sure there'll be uh, adverts going out sometime in the new year about that. And I think it's going to be a residential one, so it would be an interesting networking opportunity as well. Um, other than that, I should say... We um, one thing I haven't said about the SIG is because obviously the SIGs represent the faculty on certain issues. So any 
anything that we do which is um, which is going to be sort of stamped the special interest group global violence prevention of the Faculty of Public Health has to go through an approval process with uh, with the committee. So that can be quite slow in terms of uh, in in terms of reacting to things or, or you know being uh, being on the ball. It, it might be difficult to um, to do. So we see we see a division between official SIG business, uh, which you know this policy statement would be uh when we when we get it out but uh but i think more of the work generated by the special interest group is going to be through networking and through that sort of providing a forum thing and and, uh the email lists that we have and uh the variety of experience and 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 skills that are represented already in our currently relatively small group um it's it's just uh it's just always worth bringing those kind of people together. I think when when they have a common interest, because uh, work will inevitably result, and and so we're you know we're already seeing people going off in in ones or twos and saying, well, I'm you know I'm I'm going to pursue this project. Uh, I'd really be interested in all of your uh, in all of your comments once I've once I've finished the first draft or whatever, and. Um, and that's not something that's going to say global violence prevention special interest group on it. That's going to be something that is that is under the name of of the author, but it's it's something that will uh, will have nevertheless been generated by the special interest group. So there's a there's something about doing doing work in the background as well as uh, you know popping out official official pronouncements, which I think we're going to probably be doing less of just because of the the approval process that we'd have to go through to to get it done yeah the real benefits of having a network yeah um and and you mentioned earlier on about courses that might be available um you know particularly focusing on on conflict and health uh, are those being developed or or some already available so we um i mean Bayard and i uh both have a variety of, of presentations on this kind of topic. Um, we recently uh, went down to Southampton, uh, Bayard in that area anyway, and did a, a conflict and health day for the Wessex um, Public Health Registrar Group, which was very interesting. Um, I have a I have a, a simulation game which I've developed uh, based on my experience in Darfur which aims to to give people an idea of what it might be like to work in a in a humanitarian context and is it's based on my experiences but also modeled after the kind of multi-agency uh, major incident exercises the kind of the tabletop exercises that that I've had the opportunity to go to a few times with PHE so uh, you know people get divided up into groups and <clears throat> the and time advances somewhat artificially and oh everything's changed now you've got to you know recalculate how much uh, how much water you've you've got on hand because half of your pumps have been broken in the recent fighting and uh you know that area of, of territory has been taken over by the Janjaweed militia so you've lost half of your of your engineers because they live in that area and they can't get out um it's uh that's been quite popular with uh 
with medical students and I think it went down with the with the registrar group I've done that for the East Midlands registrar group as well so we can we can develop uh, something relatively tailor-made at, at fairly short notice um, that's separate from the, the sort of things that we we're thinking of of developing and uh, we're gonna have to have a think about what what the ideal audience would be for that I'd I'd quite like to um, to develop something for the armed forces in a way uh, because I don't know to what extent uh, you know peacekeeping troops or or people who might be you know deployed as part of a future British military intervention I don't know to what extent they are trained in um, being able to recognize and uh, reduce the health impacts on the civilian population that they're going to be fighting in and around um, and if they aren't then then that we could add some value there uh, there might also be that might also be something that would be of interest to um, to healthcare professionals who want to be more politically active on this topic there might be something that would be of interest to people who want to do humanitarian work or, or just generally overseas work so yeah, there's a lot of different potential work streams when it comes to the training, uh, which we're going to be considering at our next teleconference. Great. So it might be useful to get someone from the armed forces um, training deanery to um, to join the SIG. Yes, actually, yes. I was uh, I bumped into a, a friend um, at the uh, at the conference who's uh, defence medical. Uh, trainee, and uh, I was um, harassing her to to join. Uh, you probably shouldn't harass people, with <laughs> but you know, gently harassing. Anyway, she hasn't done yet, so I might have to hunt her down and and um, yeah, harass her some more. <laughs> but yes, uh, defence medical services trainees extremely welcome, as is everyone. Um, do you have any other advice you'd like to share with other registrars who are interested in gaining experience in this area? Um, well, in terms of if people are interested in working overseas, uh, in, in the sort of tertiary prevention, um, side of things, uh, I'd say it's very worth, it's very well worth going with an organization that have a, a sort of a, a pedigree and a, a track record. I, I have some friends who, who've gone overseas pretty much on the basis of this organization will send me to the place that I want to go. Um, and there's been several, there several times with MSF when I was really glad to be uh, working for an, an organization that had that kind of experience and competence in terms of extracting you when things go bad and uh, have seen, um, other organizations uh, and well you know the staff of other uh, non-governmental organizations in working in in trouble spots uh, get into get into trouble because um, you know they their organization is is more good intentions and and less good planning so uh, yeah I'm 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 obviously a bit of a, an advocate for for MSF but there's lots of other organizations who have that kind of um, 
that kind of competence, which is what you really want if you're if you're going somewhere a bit a bit off the map. Um, as I said, my my general uh, life advice um, and and uh, purpose in existence, as far as I'm concerned, is to have some good stories to tell in the nursing home. <laughs> you know, just to while away the hours in between the tea trolley coming around again. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason that, that, that I'm interested in, in working overseas again. Um, and if people are interested in joining, uh, the global violence prevention, special interest group and getting more experience in, in this, I hope developing field of public health, uh, involvement with, uh, with preventing armed conflict, then I think what they should do is, uh, send an application form in and we will consider it favorably great and is there anything else you'd like to comment on that we haven't covered i don't think so no other than i do like the uh the guitar intro uh music to your podcast and i've been told that that's you is that correct <laughs> there might be some truth in that right okay well kudos i like it great well thanks very much for the feedback and this has been uh, an absolutely fascinating discussion. I'm sure so many trainees will be really interested to hear about this in, in an area that I feel is very neglected and could do a lot to really change the world. So thank you so much, Dan. Really appreciate your time on the podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also comment on this episode and other episodes on Twitter using the hashtag train in ph and feel free to suggest future topics many thanks for listening see you next time mm-hmm.